This podcast was made possible by funding from Invitae, providing genetic testing services to the HCM community and other genetic disorders. For more information, visit 4hcm.org. Good morning, Dr. Adler. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us today in this very bizarre time that we're all living through together. Oh, and thanks for having me. I'm, I'm really happy that you're here. We're going to have people start joining us uh, over the next couple of minutes. So I'm going to start with a little agenda that I brought up here. And the first item is, can you just kind of give us a, another once over on what is COVID-19 or this novel coronavirus? Sure. COVID-19 is caused by what's called SARS-CoV-2, so Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2. And it's one of seven known coronaviruses. And most of us know the coronavirus as cause of the common cold. That's a different type of coronavirus. This is a, unfortunately a little bit more similar to the coronavirus that's been associated with SARS, which I think we first described in 2002 and looks similar to um, SARS. And like SARS, it seems to have uh, originated probably in bats and possibly then moved to these pangolins, these uh, Malayan pan pangolin, small kind of, they look like a penguin animal, um, and then uh, to humans. And it's called coronavirus because it has these like spikes and it, and it basically looks like a crown. And those spikes are what make it particularly um, durable. So it can last on surfaces for a long time. It doesn't get digested by acid in the stomach as easily and some other aspects of it that make it particularly um, durable, I would say. So it's a really scary, scary virus. Well, I don't think anybody's going to deny that one now that we're sitting here in unprecedented times and how scary this particular virus is. It's affecting everything and everybody. So that's the basis of the, the virus. And let's just go over some very basic tips for removing the virus from surfaces. So what kind of cleaning tips are physicians recommending? Sure. So, you know, what's scary about this virus is it does seem to last a long time on surfaces and you know, they even found it as many, you know, you can see this report in the lay press, but, you know, 10 days in the cruise ship, they found surfaces that still have this virus. I think the HCM community is probably already ahead of the regular community and the transplant community is, is already definitely ahead in that there are already people that are conscientious about these kind of things. The good news is this does not look like it's spread in the same way is the by respiratory uh, respiratory droplets, but the droplets are relatively big. It, it usually can spread around six feet from someone, like if someone's coughing, as opposed to something else that could be airborne, where you could be in the same, you know, room or something like that. If you keep that three six foot, ideally six foot distance, you're probably fine from 
from people. But what's scary is these little droplets when someone coughs, sneezes, wipe their nose or something like that, and then they touch something, now it's on that door handle, on the table, on the desk, whatever. Um, or you can imagine if, if you know, where your kids go and what they touch. So I think the key thing, obviously, with spread is hand hygiene is probably as important as masks. So washing your hands five times a day uh, for 40, 20 to 40 seconds. Uh, sing happy birthday while you wash your hands, use hot water and soap. Um, I think uh, uh, maybe, you know, consideration of using gloves in public surfaces. That depends on you. If you're really good about not touching your face and washing your hands, okay. If you're not like me, you know, maybe gloves are a reminder not to touch your hand, not to touch your face. And um, that's a good thing. Um, it's getting into your body, I should say, by somehow in some surface. So either the scary thing is it looks like it can go through your the uh, lacrimal ducts in your eyes, your nose, or your mouth. So it's really touching anywhere up here is how it gets into you. So you can imagine now we're trying to prevent you from touching a surface and touching your face or having someone like directly cough on you. In terms of cleaning surfaces, I think a good surface cleaner is is fine. So like a Lysol, Purell, things like that for your hands, but a high alcohol content cleaner or a bleach uh, based cleaner, those seem to all be good. So these standard disinfectants that you're using to clean your kitchen and things, probably um, okay. Uh, bleach based, alcohol based would be the best. Hydrogen and peroxide based? And hydrogen peroxide based, that's correct. So all those things seem to work uh, work well. The transplant community becomes very aware of these issues immediately after transplant. We actually have to take classes on this. We are the ones who were teaching everybody how to clean and where to look for, you know, under seat belt clamps and behind the door handles and under your door handles in your car, all these weird places where we as transplant patients learned how to be paranoid. Yeah. So we guys have been doing this for a long time. So it's great. It's actually, I'm, I feel more comfortable about my transplant patients. It's kind of just business as usual for them. Right. The rest of the world, welcome to our world and hopefully right. we'll create a, a community in the future that maybe flus won't travel so far because we're all going to be much more aware of these basic uh, hygiene issues that should have been followed all along, but we got a little lax on. Right. So, okay. So now let's get into some more specific details here. And that is um, HCM and COVID. So let's talk about if somebody with HCM gets COVID, is there anything specific that you would be looking out for, medicines that you would be looking at more positively or negatively? Sure. What about the HCM obstructed and non-obstructed? So, you know, obviously we're in a little bit of a data-free zone with this because there's thankfully not been, you know, much in the literature or, you know, I talk among the HCM community, doctors at least, around understanding HCM in COVID. What do we do know about heart disease and COVID taking a step back? We know that the patients that are getting sick with COVID are patients that have pre-existing conditions, hypertension, heart failure being two of them that concern, concern me. So... I think we can assume some of the same things about HCM. And certainly I would think about it more about there's um, overlapping uh, Venn circles between HCM and heart failure. So a lot of HCM patients don't have any heart failure. I'm less worried about them. Some of our HCM patients, both obstructive and non-obstructive, also now have signs and symptoms of heart failure. I'm a little bit uh, more worried about them. And Let's then pause so, there for just a second because yeah. that can be confusing to those. Sure, who maybe, maybe, yeah. Uh, it's very definition hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is a 
form in the literation form of failure. But let's talk about what type yeah. of failure we're talking about. So, so what I mean is I think people can have cardiomyopathy, they can have a thick heart, but they have no signs and symptoms, right? Some of our patients feel fine. They're not, they don't need a water pill. They live their life. That's very different than some of our patients who are feel signs and symptoms from their cardiomyopathy, from their HCM. And it seems like it's the patients that are having known symptoms. I think it's mostly what we're seeing is patients with lower ejection fractions. That's, it's clear that those patients are more commonly the ones in the hospital with COVID. So we don't, I don't have as much information about patients who have a normal ejection fraction, who have no signs and symptoms of their uh, cardiomyopathy, um, which is a good percentage of the community, thankfully, and their risk of COVID. That's not true with high blood pressure. So it seems like, and this data is seems common in China and uh, Italy and now the U.S., that having high blood pressure puts you at risk for being sicker if you get COVID. It may also put you at risk for getting COVID. That's a complicated issue and controversial, like all things in medicine. It looks like having high blood pressure makes you express a receptor called the ACE2 receptor. The ACE2 receptor, you many of you guys or some of you guys are on ACE inhibitors. So you know about ACE. So the ACE2 receptor, believe it or not, is in your lungs. And that's the way that COVID gets into your body through this ACE2 receptor. So there's some thought about whether there's a relationship to people have high blood pressure. Do they have more of this ACE2 receptor in their lungs? And also are people on certain medicines, could they have more of this ACE receptor. It's very controversial. You can find two people to tell you the two opposite things. The one fact that I do know is that if you have high blood pressure, those patients are more, the patients in the hospital with COVID, many of them have high blood pressure. So there seems to be some kind of association there. Um, Many of them have low, uh, have heart failure. So there is some association there. So I do think this community as a large has to be more concerned. I wish we had more data about it. And I think the best thing to do is just to be, um, what you what you said is brilliant uh, on the on the scroll be- below, stay calm, but stay concerned and be, pre- you know, worry doesn't help you, preparedness helps you and being rational and doing everything you can to prevent yourself from getting this um, is rational. Letting your doctors know if you don't feel well, that's good. But sitting around and freaking out, not gonna help you. Mm-mm. So there's been some talk over certain therapies for COVID. And some of them are a little bit concerning to some in the HCM community because they can impact the QT interval. Yeah. So could you first explain what the hell a Q- the, or QT interval is to most of our watchers? And number two, explain what you would suggest if an HCM patient, and we'll talk about transplant and general cardiomyopathy in a moment, but to HCM patients who might be considering taking these meds, talk to them about what that might mean, and specifically in the face of Norpace, disapiramide. Oh, good thoughts. Ooh. Let me digest that a little bit. So the first part of this is what is the QT interval? Or maybe I can take a step back and talk about some of the medicines that are being uh, proposed. So the good news is there's lots of studies going on to try to figure out therapies for COVID. And those studies include both medicines to treat COVID and medicines to prevent 
COVID, namely immunizations. When we're talking about treating COVID, there's two or three trials going on that look that are ongoing that we're, we're hopeful for, but it's going to be a few months before we have it. As you and the HCM community know, it's very important that your trials are done well randomized, placebo-controlled, blinded trials. If we don't do those, if we just start panicking and give everyone medicines, we'll never know if they work. That being said, there's two or uh, three trials going on. There's trials of antiviral drugs. There's a drug that's being used to tr that was used to treat Ebola that's being used, resmedivir, that's in a trial from a company called Gilead, which actually has done some, I believe, some pulmonary hypertension HCM work. Then there's a, a trial of tocilizumab, which is a drug that's an anti-inflammatory drug that's going on. So those are two trials. The drug that everyone's talking about because it's gotten into the lay press and our, it's gotten into the press coming out, president's been talking about it, is hydroxychloroquine. Hydroxychloroquine is a drug that's been used for a long time to treat malaria. It's also used to treat various rheumatologic conditions, the most common being like lupus and things like that. So it's, it, we have a lot of data on hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine. These drugs also go by the name Plaquenil. Okay, so some of our patients may have rheumatoid arthritis and other things that have been on it. The data for that is based on some, first of all, in vitro data. So what it does in the, in the dish, like if you pour it on a bunch of the virus in the dish, there seems to be some activity against it. And then a very small trial of 20 patients where seven uh, got nothing, seven got this Plaquenil drug and seven got Plaquenil plus azithromycin. And the people that got azithromycin and Plaquenil, they clear, they seem to have cleared the virus a little bit faster. This wasn't a randomized trial, wasn't blinded trial. It wasn't evident. It wasn't outcomes-based. We don't know if they, how much quickly they, if they lived longer, felt better. It was just measuring things. That being said, in China and Italy, they, you know, uh, they, they have been using some of this drug based on some of this stuff. Our concerns about this, especially in the HCM community, is we've known about these drugs, hydroxychloroquine, because it can have effects on the heart. And so even in patients before COVID who were taking this drug, I would see patients with side effects of these drugs. So one of them is actually, and it's not talked about as much, is cardiomyopathy. So I, there's a plaquenil cardiomyopathy. Actually, it looks like Danon disease, so that's why I'm kind of interested in it. So it looks very similar to actually be an HCM uh, phenocopy is plaquenil cardiomyopathy. Um, it's very rare, probably one, you know, I don't know the numbers and off the top of my head, but it's, I could say it's very rare. So most people with, who take plaquenil don't get it, but it's common enough that I've seen it. I've seen it two or three times. We've seen it in patients who are presenting for transplant and we stop the plaquenil and the heart gets better. So this is a rare complication some people have, this cardiomyopathy. The second thing is uh, these drugs can lengthen the QT. So the QT is how long it takes for the heart to relax, essentially electrically. Remember, the heart has an electrical system and a mechanical system. First, the electricity goes through, then the, that, that electricity causes the heart to squeeze. How long it takes for electricity to go in and out of the cell this is kind of a rough approximate, you know, definition, but how long it takes for us, uh, the electrical charge to depolarize and repolarize, yeah, is the Q, is manifested on the EKG as that QT, the difference between the Q wave, which is the beginning of that big spike, and the T wave, which is the little hump after it. Yeah, exactly. 
And that length of time, during that time, your heart is vulnerable. In other words, if you have a long QT, if it takes you a long time to repolarize in one cell and another cell starts depolarizing, that causes ventricular tachycardia and sudden death. So the longer your QT, the more likely you are to have ventricular tachycardia and sudden death. This is the whole syndrome is genetic syndrome called long QT syndrome, which does this. And we know some drugs, including hydroxychloroquine, can do this. The majority of people who take it, I don't want to scare everyone and say, you know, your doctor says to take it. You say, oh, no, I can't take it. The majority of people probably would be fine, but they should be monitored and think about it. I, in an ideal world, they would have an EKG beforehand to make sure they don't have long QT. For the HCM community who are on other medicines and you measure Norpace and other things that already might lengthen the QT, you can imagine adding hydroxychloroquine to the mix and maybe azithromycin, which may do it as well. Now you're adding uh, two drugs on addition to the background drugs you're taking. Now three drugs, four drugs, you might lengthen your QT. And remember in the HCM community, we're also at more, our patients are more risk for sudden death. So it seems like a bad idea, but everything should be based on a conversation with doctors. That's ideally for all of us, certainly for, for, for this community. I would say definitely talk to your doctor before doing this. We've gotten these questions all week at the uh, HCMA uh, Facebook community. And that is, what if I have to take it? And common sense says, if you're going to have to take it because your lungs are so acutely affected or at risk of becoming affected, you have to weigh your risk and your benefit and work with your healthcare provider and monitor yourself. If you are developing a long QT and you're in a hospital and you're monitored, God forbid something happens, you have an emergency team right there. And right. it might be worth the benefit to, to push the envelope on one way while making sure that you're safe and protected in another. But we know that a lot of these patients are going to have to go to community-based hospitals as opposed to HCM Centers of Excellence. Right. So I know that a number of Center of Excellence physicians that I've spoken to over the past week and a half said that they're available by phone to consult in ERs. They can do webcasts. They can do video chats. They want to talk to your healthcare providers. So yeah. reach out to your team and see how many people you'll find available to you. You might be surprised. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting separate point, but one of the things that we're learning from COVID, so there's going to be good with the bad, you know, and it's changing our society. It's changing medical care. We at UCSD, at least we're doing 75% of our visits are like this right now. We're doing televisits. So, I, you know, I had this aha moment. This is actually a great thing for HCM, not the disease. But this idea, should we be offering for our patients that don't live near um, an HCM center? So I can offer this. If people are interested in talking to me, they can get a hold of Lisa. We can start doing virtual visits, which is about 70%, 80% of what we need for, you know, to be honest, you know, I, it's better if I can have a stethoscope and all and listen. And obviously a physical exam is better. But if we can do a virtual consult once a year, we might be helping. So I think it's a great idea now. Almost all the HCM, the academic doctors I know in private, private, we're rapidly moving to these video conferences at UCSD, my institution, we can video conference with anyone now, do a video visit. So if you can't get in to see your doctor, ask them for a video visit. And if not, you may want to look on the HCM website, contact a center of excellence 
um, and ask them, hey, can I do a, a video consult? And most of us are going to be able to do it now. Very interesting point and a little off the COVID topic. But over the past six months, several programs have kicked on to use it more. It's been out there for maybe two or three years. But there were so many regulations that people weren't sure how they worked between state lines. And can you build for it? What does this look like? Some of them are just doing it. If you're going in for surgery, um, they'll just do a virtual visit anyway ahead of time. They'll bill your insurance company a regular visit and they tend to pay now. And I think we're going to see as a nation that this is a much more time effective and cost effective way to do some basic visits, uh, especially yeah. if you're traveling across country and you've got hotel and airfare and everything else to consider. Um, this works. We can communicate. I think so. I mean, think about our patients don't live, you know, I bet you half the country doesn't live with it. I mean, you would know better than me, but I would think I bet a lot of our patients don't live within a hundred miles of a HCM center majority probably. Right. So believe it or not, right now we're getting close to that for okay. the coasts, you know, the okay. East West coast sure. we're closer, uh, the center of the country. No. And right. this is a great way to help those rural populations yeah. get involved with a higher level program. Yeah. So that's. And we that's, can do genetic, we can send you genetic tests. We can send you to your doctor and get an echo, look at the echo. I mean, there's a lot, a lot we can do. So there is going to be a lot we learn. You know, unfortunately, we're all suffering right now, but we have to think about, you know, in crisis, there's opportunity and the technology is going to get better and better to, to allow for these types of visits. Exactly. So just as an overview to go back to what we just talked about in HCM, um, and there was a question on the side that I want to go, two questions I want to go over. Number one, and we're going to get into this in a second with transplant patients, are patients with HCM viewed as having an altered immune system? This is a big question that we're getting because HCM patients can get hit by the common cold a little rough, and they're thinking that their immune system is actually compromised. Is that what is actually happening? Well, that's a tough question. There is probably an infl more inflammatory response in cardiomyopathy. So that's for sure. So you are all, when you have cardiomyopathy, we know that we can measure markers of inflammation and show they're already higher than in non-cardiomyopathy patients. Whether your immune system is worse, I don't, I don't know. I don't think so, but I do think you have a baseline higher level of inflammation, which may make it feel worse when you get infected. The other thing is you're, you know, when you get in, when someone with HCM gets infected and then the first things that happen is your heart starts working harder, all these things start working harder. And we know for HCM patients, especially obstructive HCM patients, that's gonna make you feel worse, not better having the high heart rate. So for example, if you get a fever and your heart rate starts going up, that's actually bad for HCM patients in terms of how they feel generally. Their obstruction can go up, their regurgitation can go up, et cetera. If somebody were- um, I'm gonna be mobile for a second because my charge is dying on my phone, uh -oh. but I'll keep talking. <laughs> so if somebody were to be affected with COVID, with HCM, would you recommend them get to the hospital more quickly than somebody without HCM? Where's the line of, I need to not be home, I need to be in medical care? I think that they they should call, the, it's, everything should be in conjunction with their HCM doctor or their just general doctor. Just shoot them a call. If you can't get a hold of someone, which is concerning because everyone is kind of busy, then that changes things. So then we have to move to like a second level issue where you call an urgent care, call somebody else, make sure that 
make sure that you talk to somebody. What I worry about is everyone is so overwhelmed that they can't talk to anybody. Then that's a problem because if you can't get a hold of anyone and you're feeling worse, I think general ER precautions are good. So what are general ER precautions? If you can't breathe, go to the emergency room. If in doubt, go to the emergency room. A lot of people are scared to go to the emergency room right now. I would actually say, from what I've seen in most communities, they're being really careful. Mm -hmm. I actually think they're being as careful as they should have been normally. So they're checking for temperatures before you go in. They're screening people, separating people out. If you need to, if you can't get a hold of a doctor and you have a question, you can't get a hold of your primary or your cardiologist, especially if you're having symptoms, shortness of breath, chest pain, palpitations, go see somebody. I do worry that life is going to go on without COVID and our patients in this community are also going to need care. So people are going to have non-COVID problems. They're going to have palpitations associated with their HCM. They're going to have sudden death from their HCM and things are going to be busy. Don't ignore those because, oh, I don't want to go to the ER because of, because I'm hearing that from patients already. I don't want to go there. It's going to be a mess. If you need care, get care and don't let COVID prevent you from getting the care you regularly need anyways. Right. So we have like AFib and HCM. Yeah. We have those issues. Yeah. That's yeah. a little concerning. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to um, pivot for a moment. Um, this is an easier one. COVID and transplant patients. Yes. So what do the transplant community patients need to know that's different than what we've already discussed? Good question. Obviously, these are immunos. You, everyone who's got a heart transplant is immunosuppressed in some way. So we're a little bit more anxious. The data is, uh, thankfully, we're not seeing, we are seeing cases of H, of transplant patients getting COVID. There's a few that have, you know, obviously, this is across all solid organ transplant, not just heart transplant, but the concern is there. So I think transplant patients, I think we talked at the beginning of the hour about, they're already careful to begin with. I would just amp it up a little bit more. And you know it, the classic transplant patient is wearing the mask around the chin and being, you know, like this kind of thing. No you know, be a step it up to back to when you first got your transplant is what I would, would say. So transplant uh, patients should be masked in public right now. Even I think, though it's not really helpful generally. Yeah. I, I mean, listen, this is a little bit of a judgment call, right. And, uh, you know, but no one died from wearing a mask in public. <laughs> so if it was me and I had a transplant, uh, maybe, um, you know, the, the reason you wear a mask is as much to prevent you from touching your face as it is from someone actually breathing on you. Hopefully you're not out in public. None of us are doing a lot out in public anyways, right? right? So that being said, I think so. I'm telling my transplant patients to mask and glove, to be more careful, to wipe everything down, really avoid anyone with this, obviously. You know, I, I like we're going to stay calm and, and stay safe. But one of the things that's scary about this one is that kids and young adults can have little to no symptoms and be spreading it. So this is not the time to hug your grandkids. This is not the time to go to the pick up your kid at a daycare or have a birthday party. That's true for any of our HCM patients, especially true for our, our transplant patients, because the kid, especially little kids, can, can have this and they could be spreading it and they could feel nothing or very little, like so little, they're not even telling their parents. They could have like a little sore throat and have full blown COVID. 
So for that being said, I think being extra careful, which is what we tell transplant patients anyways, in terms of changing your transplant medications, anything more extreme like that, that's a doctor to patient conversation. We're not changing transplant medications. We're just advising, we're, we're decreasing our number of clinics substantially. So we're doing remote clinics for a lot of our transplant patients. Biopsies are postponed at this point for some. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're doing much, we're doing less biopsies for now in, in stable patients. And I think that's the consensus. The International Society of Heart Transplant has been having Saturday emergency meetings about this. So giving guidelines and I'm on that, that working group to give guidelines on should we continue to be doing transplants right now? How do we decide when not to do transplants? What to advise patients regarding steroids, immunosuppression, all of these things. But right now it's pretty much just how everyone should be plus a little bit more vigilant, if that helps. Back to how you were when you first got your transplant is what I would say. That, those are really good points. Um, mm -hmm. One thing that I'm a little concerned with is the number of transplants. I'm sure we're gonna see some level of dip right now simply because of the availability of respirators, you know? Yeah, I mean, we're, you know, we're, we're worried about that. And so I think right now, believe it or not, most centers are still doing um, transplants, but I think we're going to see in New York that going down very fast. Right one of now, our, one of our community members got hers last week. So. Yeah, so I think, I think right now we're good, but that, that could, that could change in a hurry. And so I think uh, we'll just have to take it day by day. That's what we're doing in our group. Every patient, and this is transitioning from the transplant patient to your community of patients that are waiting for transplant. So there's probably a percentage of HGM patients waiting. Most of you are still gonna be on your wait list. Some are gonna be um, delayed. And I think that's okay to be delayed to make sure it's safe. So I do want to take just a couple more minutes to talk about other cardiomyopathies, specifically something near and dear to your heart, the Dannon's community, yeah. uh, Unions, the dilated cardiomyopathies. Are there other messages to those communities in the face of COVID? I think it, it, I think it applies to all of us. So I think most of what we said applies to, to all our patients. Um, thinking about uh, broadly speaking, what are some of the, we talked about transplant, we talked about, um, I'd like to talk about other clinical trials. So this is actually unfortunate, but probably most clinical trials are being delayed because of COVID. I know that's most centers I know are not enrolling. That includes trials for, you know, HCM drugs, not, you know, Dannon stuff, the, um, the dilated cardiomyopathy. So we're probably going to see less enrollment in clinical trials for the next few months because we're trying to keep patients there. The risk benefit isn't as clear. In terms of other drugs that you might be taking for your cardiomyopathy, I mentioned these ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers. The current guidelines are not to stop taking them, but you can have that conversation with your doctor. There's still some wiggle room about if you get COVID, should you stop some of the medicines you're taking? The answer is that's a doctor to patient question. I would never give um, broad advice on that because it's very uh, controversial right now. And even doctors, there's not agreement. No, and you could actually be putting yourself at more risk for something much more pressing, like a hypertensive, uh, you know, 
crisis death. Be very dangerous and cause a stroke or some other consequence if you stop your meds versus if you're stopping them just because it might be better for COVID. So you have yeah. to really weigh those two together. Yeah. No, I think um, that's exactly right as usual. So, um, so I worry that if people just stop stopping it, they're not going to go into heart failure or going to, you know, from their H their HGM is going to get worse or people start panicking. And so I worry the harm is, as they say, the, the uh, juice is not worth the squeeze in this case, this, the best, the best use of your time is washing your hands, staying away from sick people, socially dis isolating yourself as much as you can. Um, those are the things that are going to have the most bang for the buck. That's awesome. I will address one question and I know the answer is, um, actually I'll address two more questions. Sure. Uh, number one, do we have any knowledge of how many patients with HCM have had COVID and do we have any information on the outcomes? I don't right now. I'm just, we're, we're, we're desperate for more data and we are, um, at least in the UC system, we've organized a registry. So I think that data uh, will come pretty quickly. And I'm sure with the prevalence in New York that there are HCM patients, unfortunately, getting it in New York. So I think we're going to learn in the next few months. Um, but right yeah. now, not much. Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Alavato about this. Yeah, he may uh, have more. And I can tell you that we have an HCM doc who's COVID right oh, now. God. He's doing okay. Um, and thereby, I know there's been a few patients who we believe had it, but because of the timing, they didn't receive testing. And the one that did get testing was 10 days after the fever broke. So he may have been cleared by the test by that point. Wow. Okay. Yeah. He had 102 fever the weekend before last. He okay. broke it. And then on the following Thursday started to feel a little rattling in his chest. Everything's kind of breaking up and he went for a test and it took three days to get the test results back and it came back as clear, but the yeah. disease pathway sounded very COVID, but it was negative. So we yeah, I mean, what we're telling people is we want, especially high risk patients, or let's say you have a family member that's high risk. I would say, and you have symptoms, I would say you want two negative tests 24 hours apart, especially if you really have typical symptoms because there's a false negative rate. So we're taking the test twice, uh, at least 24 hours apart. Because that test also, you have to get that Q-tip back and deep into the nose there. I don't want to scare people from getting it, but, um, but so there's a false negative rate. So if you really have consistent symptoms, I think the assumption is you you have it in terms of your interactions with other people. I think that's great advice. Um, the last one, it's been in there and out there, ibuprofen versus acetaminophen. Right. Yeah. So, well, so this is also controversial. Thanks for Thanks for throwing out all the controversial stuff. There is some, again, not real clear evidence, but some suggestion, maybe it makes it worse, ibuprofen, maybe not. I would say for HCM patients, ibuprofen is not a great drug all the time anyways, because it can affect your kidney. If you have cardiomyopathy, we generally don't use a lot of ibuprofen. So I would say um, use the acetaminophen if you can, and then talk to your doctor a bit about it, the ibuprofen. I've looked at like 10 different places, guidelines over the last uh, two weeks from you know, from the East Coast programs, West Coast program, and I'm seeing it all over. You're seeing some people say no reason not to take it. You're seeing the WHO saying don't take it. 
you're seeing all kind of Facebook posts, oh, throw it all out. It's usually judgment in the middle. My guess is a, a, a one, one ibuprofen is not going to really cause the, the, the massive problem. But if you're nervous about it, talk to your doctor. Fantastic. I do need to call you guys out on the other thing that you did. Dr. Adler and one of his colleagues started a Facebook group for physicians around the world to share information. And they were nice enough to let me sneak in there so I could keep up on things. Um, how many patients do, or how many uh, physicians do you have sharing information now? Or We have about 9,000 uh, physicians all sharing, you know, front of the line moment-to-moment -moment information. So it's been a really uh, useful, helpful. We copied a, a, a similar program in Italy. Michela Brambati, who is an uh, Italian doctor practicing in the U.S., came up with the idea, and it's been uh, really taking off. And now we are like moment-to-moment -moment feeds of how things are going all over and sharing protocols, and it's been really great. It's been incredibly helpful. Um, I know uh, Rich Ha has also been sharing information. Yeah his general Facebook page. Uh, he's a cardiac surgeon from Northern California. Yeah, he's an amazing guy. And great guy, really knowledgeable. And, you know, I've been trying to call through all that information, come up at validating sources and sharing what is reasonable, not hypothesis, but yeah. they seem like they've been proven um, with the community and trying, trying to, to do facts and not opinions, which is important, right? Everyone's got an opinion. But... Yeah. And right now we don't have a lot of great data because this is moving so fast. It takes us a long time to coordinate data. Um, and I know that there's people in the HCM community that are interested in, in looking at how HCM responded here so that we have some data for the future. I mean, and one other thing to think about, um, just thinking out loud is some of you may have a ton of masks. Like if you were stockpiling masks and stuff for a long time and you say, wow, I have three years of something like that. You may want to think about talking to your local hospital about donation because we're running, you know, we're running out of masks, especially in the East Coast and things like that. It's a it's a horrible situation. So if you you know or if you know loved ones or, you know, I reached out to a local restaurant that, that had masks because they were using it. We were, you know, we're using masks from all kinds of sources, from painters. We're using masks from construction sites. So if you have any ideas, you know, if you want to put your your nervous energy into good use, talk to your local hospital, talk to your doctor, see what you can do to help. We have people sewing masks, sewing gowns. Um, there's a lot of things you can do to help. And so you don't have to feel helpless. You can be part of the team here. So we really and we know you guys are an amazing team. I know my community is freaking awesome. And I will post some uh, directions from Joanne's Fabrics on how to make a mask for those of you who sew. But I think the most important thing that anybody who's watching this can do is to stay home yes. so that our healthcare providers stay safe too. I'm yes. very worried about our frontline healthcare workers today. And I implore you all to, to self-quarantine. And I got to tell you something. This is not my first rodeo. When I found out my heart was failing and I needed to have a transplant, I went from literally being at the White House one Friday to being locked home by the next Friday. And I was locked in for six months waiting for my transplant. I didn't move beyond my front steps much. And you know what? It was hard the first week or two, but then you kind of get into a pattern. Get up every day at the same time. Take your shower, put your makeup on, do your hair, get dressed. Do work. If you're, if you're not working, if you're in disability, if you're just home and now you're isolated, Come up with a list of things that you want to accomplish inside of a week and parse them out so you're doing them all the time. 
stay active, stay engaged, use social media. It's actually using it for good these days rather than just bitching. So use it, connect with people, talk to the elderly in your community, drop them notes, let them know that you're there to help them. I have an 84 year old neighbor across the street. We talked at a distance the other day and she knows that we've got her back. So make sure you're watching out for your elderly neighbors, even if they're not related to you, even if they're the grouchy old lady next door who's been annoying, right now is not the time. Be yep. kind. Help yep. your neighbors and stay away from people, please. Yep. Yep. So, thank Dr. you. Heather, thank I, you for that message. I thank you so much for everything that you've done for the community and uh little pitch. It's doing amazing work in Dannon's research. There's a clinical trial going on. For those of you who don't know, this guy's kind of brilliant over here. Wait, I got to point the right way. Wait, wait. You must way. be talking to my mom. <laughs> yeah, I, I know your work and, and it's beyond impressive. So thank you for sharing your time. Thanks so today. much for having me on. You're very welcome. Thank you, all everybody, right. for all your questions. Bye. We'll be back on at 3.15. See you then. The HCMA would like to thank Rode Microphones for their support of this podcast. Rode Microphones generously donated the Rodecaster Pro soundboard to help make this podcast possible and to help us sound so good. Thank you, Rode Microphones, for your support.